just going to swear. Doesn't matter. You're 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 oh, I forgot. You don't know how to use that. Well, I don't know what I'm doing. This is tough for Josh. He's editing pressure today. It's been like six weeks. I've forgotten everything. You've never done it, editing. That's nonsense. I've edited. There have been a couple you have not been on. Yeah, I have edited the best podcasts. We haven't done. I've edited multiple ones I haven't been on. (laughs) 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 All right, you guys ready? (laughs) Yeah, let's do it. All righty. All right. Are you ready? Good starting. Hey, All right. Hey. Yes. Love hey, it. everybody. Welcome to another episode of Congress Two Beers In. I'm Matt Glassman, Senior Fellow at the Government Affairs Institute. I am here with a whole bunch of Government Affairs Institute experts today. So why don't we just go around the table and introduce ourselves. Who's here with us today? I'm Josh. <laughs> Mark's here with you today. Laura's here. And we've got a special guest, uh, Gabby Oleg, our intern for the summer. Say hi to everybody, Gabby. Hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So where are we starting? Well, today is Friday, July 12th, 2019, and there's a lot going down in the United States Congress. There really is. Well, there's a lot not there's a, there's a lot not going down in the United States Congress too, and that's something else to talk about, but <laughs> right now the NDAA is on the floor yep. of the House. Uh, Mark is trying to decipher the motion to commit, I believe. Is that yeah, right? I've got I've deciphered it. I'm not sure what the vote is yet. Huh. So the motion to commit is the opportunity in the House under the rules for the minority, uh, typically a partisan minority, but really anyone who's against the bill. Uh, to, uh, an opportunity to offer one amendment to the bill uh, in the form of a motion to recommit it to committee. And typically this is a party line vote in which the minority uh, offers something that might uh, be a messaging vote to embarrass the majority or just set their priorities up and get people on record with how they vote. And it almost always fails. Uh, you take you know hundreds of bills come to the floor in Congress each year and in, in some Congresses there's zero motions to recommit that pass. It's just an opportunity for the minority to offer an amendment. Uh, however, this Congress the Republicans have offered a number of successful motions to recommit, uh, and there's one on the floor right now for the National Defense Authorization Act yeah, uh, that is very close. I think it went down. I'm not down on vote table yet because they're voting final passage right now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they peeled off uh, a number of Democrats. You need obviously 218 votes to pass the House. The Democrats currently have 235 seats in the House, so they can afford to lose 17 votes if everyone was there, and they've lost at least a dozen votes on this motion to recommit. Uh, which, in the big scheme of things, doesn't mean a whole lot, but it does get people talking about why uh, Ms. Pelosi or other leaders of the Democratic Party can't seem to control their caucus, which mm-hmm. I think is probably the bigger picture issue going on right now in Washington and a huge topic of discussion is that we have some infighting in the Democratic Party. Uh, Josh, why don't you take the wheel here, since you predicted this was coming, uh, even before the election, you predict that we were going to see this sort of fighting in the Democratic Party, so I feel like you're the person to talk about this. Well, sure, Matt. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't remember making that prediction, but I was sure smart. Um, no, uh, That's okay. It's, uh, it was my prediction. No, that's not. That's not. Uh, one, of the things, one, of the things that's, uh, one of the things that's interesting is that it, there's a split even within the people who are kind of pushing uh, forward against. Um, so we have... Um, the left wing of the party, which is the CPC, the Congressional Progressive Caucus. And then within that caucus, you have a group of four people, which is really where the feuding is. Right? Mm-hmm. And this has been interesting to watch. Everybody's been wondering whether the Progressive Caucus is going to become another version of the House Freedom Caucus. Right? It's going to be this mm-hmm. radical wing of the party that is going to exert floor leverage right, by denying votes. Right? And we haven't seen that. The CPC has not gone out. In fact, 
I'm, I'm trying and failing to write a piece about how the CPC is kind of playing a very good internal game. Yeah. Um, they're uh, going through leadership. They're talking with Pelosi. Like, even now, where Pelosi and uh, the four freshmen uh, are in an open feud with one another, meaning AOC, Ayanna Presley, Ilhan Omar, and Rashida Tlaib. Uh, the squad. CP, right, the squad. <laughs> CPC has taken a very back seat to this. Yeah. They've, they've kind of expressed support for both sides. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, my, uh, Mrs. Jayapal has been working really hard to make sure that she doesn't like cut ties with the leadership. So it's been interesting to watch, but um, the four freshmen who are like really starting to push on immigration type stuff, it, it's, it's causing a rift. It's not a House Freedom Caucus type rift, but it's right. certainly like irking Pelosi and it's causing all sorts well, of problems. Because they're not attacking, I mean, they're attacking their own people in their own party, right? right? The moderates in their own party, which were the majority makers. Right. That was the issue. And that's one thing that Mark McCain did too, right? He called, Met, he called a. Um, oh, Pocan, yeah. Pocan, okay. uh, from. from uh, Wisconsin. Yeah, just for, for reference for our listeners, Jayapal and Pocan are the co-chairs of, right, the, of, the uh, CPC. Con- of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. You've also seen support for Pelosi from uh, the Congressional Black Caucus and a lot of different members uh, there as well. So, And, and you know, the, let's get some context. Is, right, the, C- the CBC yeah. is your classic example of a faction within a party. Well, and, let's rewind even further. Give some more points. So the, the thing start, that we're really talking about. Democrats the thing, right, <laughs> the thing that everybody's blowing up about let's, right Let's now. start in 1950. <laughs> That's right. There will uh, there, be a quiz at the end of this. There are a couple things. So, like, <laughs> will be a three beer podcast. Uh, there, there were, yeah, there was there was a lot of uh, action going on during the border bill, um, and what ended up yep. happening is there were some tweets sent, one by the chief of staff for Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, that accused the moderates of the caucus of being segregationists, essentially, mm-hmm. um, Southern Democrats. Uh, so that sure, was sure. So start. this is a vote last week that was a four point five billion dollar uh, bill that the squad voted against, mm-hmm. uh, which is unusual. They were the only Democrats to vote. Only against. Democrats right. to vote against. And then, um, and then from there, uh, Pelosi uh, said some words in the New York Times, which were not flattering to these four uh, these four freshman members. Um, and then these uh, Alexandria AOC came back and basically said something along the lines of, uh, "She's tired of her Pelosi singling out uh, women of color, uh, newly elected, newly elected women, women of, of color, color, which um, has irked the CBC." So yeah. Matt, this is well. I, I mean, I was going to go back to an even bigger context of this, which is that a majority party in the House is always, whatever the majority party is, uh, a collection of people with diverse viewpoints about issues and that aren't fundamentally unified sure. uh, around every, anything but the most basic kind of fundamental principles of their party. And so you're always going to have a situation in the House, which is run by the majority, where the leadership has to find a way to make sure they can keep their votes together. And there's really two ways for a faction to go about influencing the leadership and the direction of the party. One is they have their votes, so they can withhold their votes on the floor, or threaten to withhold their votes, incredibly threaten to bring down the leadership's plan, or they can try and influence it behind the scenes. Uh, The vast majority of factions take the latter approach. They try to build up within the party support for their preferences and compromise in behind the scenes stuff before bills come to the floor. Um, at times, you see the other tactic, most recently with the Freedom Caucus. The Congressional Black Caucus is a great example of a group that tends to work behind the scenes and is strongly influential in the Democratic Party, and you never really have to worry about them abandoning the Democrats on the floor. As well but, as being integrated into party leadership. Yeah, Clyburn. exactly. Yeah. And, and so, you know, these groups that are operating the floor, like the Freedom Caucus, or, you know, um, the, the hallmarks of them is that they tend to be groups that don't have a lot of power internally in the chamber, or within the leadership structure or in the committee system. Uh, and this is also reflective of the Blue Dogs uh, from some time ago, the Democrats. And, you know, with the Blue Dogs, you saw it sort of in the centrist position. So they were these people in these swing districts. And that kind of 
forced them in that box because often they didn't have a ton of seniority. They were always in marginal districts that were in danger of losing. And if you can't influence things behind the scenes, you have to threaten on the floor. Now, and I, I think this you know, contrast by Matt is, is, is extremely well done um, in terms of what your different strategies can be. Um, there, there are additional contrasts that you could make between the House Freedom Caucus and uh, the, some of the progressives, particularly the more visible ones, uh, that the Democrats have as their faction that they're contending with now. And one of them is, A, that these folks don't vote as a block the way that the House Freedom Caucus would, uh, being able to deny the Speaker uh, 218 votes on, on different things yet. that were important yeah, to them. Not yet. Uh, not yet. Um, I, I, I don't foresee that, but uh, yeah, they're not operating that way. Um, but also, you have the visibility of some of those members in particular, you know, people like AOC, which has an, a tremendous following on Twitter and yep. has tremendous visibility, which you will often use, a, you know, this particular kerfuffle aside, which you will often use to advance uh, different policy conversations, uh, which is also a little bit different uh, than what we saw with the House Freedom Caucus. Uh, I think you have a, a Democratic Party leadership that is know. starting I to... I'm going to push back. I'm going to push back on that. I think the Freedom Caucus didn't use Twitter, but they absolutely used Fox News and other outlets yeah. to do the same thing. They were doing the same thing. There were new members who were coming in and doing the same type of thing, but using a different medium. I think AOC has a bigger following than anyone. Oh, I'm not saying that they weren't on on Fox News, but in in terms of the variety of different policy issues that AOC is putting out there and engendering a conversation about, you had a smaller uh, number of issues with the House Freedom Caucus that they would vote on the block against and it tended to be things like voting against the budget or deficit ceiling and things of that nature. I think you have a wider policy conversation Mm -hmm. that's happening. I mean, one thing that's true is that the D.C. media loves a faction voting against the majority party Absolutely. The party. That yeah. is like A1 story yeah, one. that you will always get picked up and they both fall into that category and so they both have uh, even outsized yeah. influence in public because of that nature. I, I mean, I think that the uh, you know the challenge for Pelosi cuts across both these things yeah. and that is that we have this group of centrists in these swing districts and sometimes Republicans are going to hold those seats when they have a majority sometimes Democrats are going to hold those seats when they have a majority and that group is never going to be thrilled with what the wing of their party is doing in the current coalition. And those centrists are sometimes the, you know, the liberal Republicans, right? And sometimes they're going to be the conservative Democrats. And they're always going to be struggling against anybody in a safe seat in their party who wants to try and pull the party to the extreme. And by definition, what you said before, they don't build up seniority because they're the ones who are the the least secure in their seats. Those are the ones that, whenever there's a wave, they're the ones who are washed out either direction. And so they don't have those protections, those institutional protections that these other groups do. What's fascinating, and I think Laurie has hit on this good point, that these these newer members are pushing these things faster, even though they don't have the normal trappings. I said, and I've been on the podcast in the past saying, I think that AOC is going to fade because she doesn't have the leadership. I think the chairmen are going to take over. They're going to take over the message, and that's going to be there. I was 100% wrong. Um, And I have been surprised at the staying power of these younger folks. Well, and, and this was the contrast. You have her as a personality has, you know, more attention than, say, Jim Jordan. I mean, nobody wants to watch a Jim Jordan dance. Um, there seems to be like a, you know, this is a, a, an object of fascination that's kind of played out in the media. Um, uh, and, you know, this is, uh, you know, this kind of a, a conflict that with Pelosi handling her caucus, this isn't a great time. Uh, for her. Lots of different things are coming up on the docket where you don't want to be having a conversation uh, about, you know, potential support for segregationists? I I mean, this is, That's a flash in the pan. It's a flash in the pan. It it, it definitely hurts their message for this week. 
Sure. Right? They're going to pass an NDAA, which cuts back on defense spending. They're going to pass, um, they're probably voting it right now, uh, reparations or at least money to folks from 9-11. And we're sitting here talking about none of that. Mm-hmm. This is the same kind of thing mm-hmm. that Boehner fell into. Right? The Freedom Caucus always stole his message. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating that Trump does the same thing to his people. Yeah. Things are going great. He finds a way to step on the message, mm-hmm. and that's where this issue, I think, and you can and you can see you can yeah. see Pelosi's frustration. I was telling Josh this morning. This reminds me so much of watching machine politicians in local areas, and Pelosi is nothing if not a person who grew up in a political machine where they have the levers of power, and the thing they can't stand is people who try to end run them by using the newspapers and the media to right. undermine that message. And you can see it here when Pelosi says, "Well, they just have four votes." Right, and they run around on Twitter, but they just have four votes here, and it's it's this battle between the institutional power and the public pressure power, and people who have the reins of power in a machine-like situation, which I think a congressional party kind of looks like in a lot of ways, can't stand it when people try and go and use the public to end run them. And, I, and it's written all over Pelosi right now. She's she wants things to be: you have four votes, work internally in my power structure to influence things. Don't try and go outside of it and undermine me. I mean, exactly what she said, right? Yeah. Which was, if you've got a problem, blame me. Yep. Don't attack other people. The caucus, yep. come talk to me. Mm-hmm. Right. It falls right into what mm-hmm. you're saying. Matt. Right. Exactly. It's it's a it's a centralization ploy, right? Like I will be the adjudicator of the disputes of this party, yep. and you should not be going around me because I am the adjudicator. I mean, she intentionally inserts herself in the middle because that's what speakers do today, right? They are to as much that they are as metal. much babysitters as yeah. they are anything yeah. else because and they have to go around and say like, rocks. yeah, exactly, and they take. Heat and they, they they are the ones that want to control the message. Uh, John Bernstein had a great point earlier this week where he was basically saying like, yes, Pelosi is sort of ignoring a lot of stuff that the media would like her to talk about because she wants to stay on message, right? And this was during the Acosta thing. Acosta just yep. resigned today. Uh, but people were asking her about Acosta and her response was something like, that's his cabinet. He's got to figure it out sort of thing. And people took that to mean like, oh, well, we're not going to investigate him. We're not going to impeach him. We're not going to do any of this stuff. Despite the fact that Oversight and Reform had lined up a hearing to bring him in to ask him questions about this almost immediately. So the process and her rhetoric were going in different ways, right? She was clearly going after Acosta. Otherwise, Elijah Cummings wouldn't be sending that subpoena, mm-hmm. right? Um, but uh, again, this is an attempt to control the message, control the process. Um, it's sort of like, hey, look over here. I'm going to do this stuff over here, but don't go around me by going public, so mm-hmm. to speak. Well, and she has a lot of really important things that are coming up. I mean, dealing with the NDAA right now, um, mm-hmm. where the Republicans are upset that it's 17 billion shy of what they would like. Um, but, you know, we've also got the appropriations process. Yeah. Uh, we have the fact that there is less money coming in uh, than. Uh, you know, it, it's entirely possible that we may run out of funds in uh, early September. Is oh, for the debt limit? Yeah, it mm-hmm. is, uh, uh, you know, Mnuchin's uh, current projection um, because we're, re- we're getting less in corporate taxes uh, than we were at the same time last year. I mean, that's what happens when, and I, you know. And I think this is the big, big tax test. Cuts. This is the big test for people like AOC. If they want to have sort of the actual influence or perceived influence of like a Freedom Caucus, um, are they going to threaten to vote against Democratic plans and deny Pelosi majority for Rosenfeld? I don't see it. Well, here's, I, it, I, this, I really is, this is the big question, broadly speaking, is whether or not this faction does turn into a Freedom Caucus mm-hmm. type entity, right. where you're talking about a faction willing to deny the Speaker majority. Currently, there are four people. Right, <laughs> that, that's it. There are four people: Mark McCann, uh, 
and Mrs. Jaipal, they are the co-chairs of the CPC, and they are on board with a lot of this stuff. Now, they've been flexing their muscles on things like budgets, right? Um, that's been a big deal to them. It's going to be very, very interesting what this happens because this does come at a really bad time when a lot of must-pass legislation is starting to hit the agenda, and yeah. all of a sudden we have this open feud in the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. which is why she's probably talking to Mnuchin and McConnell right now. And what right. they're talking about is interesting, right? It's right. the grand bargain is what's being reported right now, <laughs> which is basically debt limit and new top-line spending numbers. Mm-hmm. And I'm betting, I mean, I've been saying this for a while, but I don't know, I'm, I'm probably going to be wrong, but I think it's going to be more than two years of spending numbers. Interesting. I think they will have to stretch it out further. Mm-hmm. Um, I think to try to get a deal, they're going to have to try to stretch it. Because if they only do it for two years, they have this incredible bad scoring situation where it looks like they're spending a lot of money. So you think they're going to put new lower caps in and out years? Um, or not it, not increase them as quickly. Here's here's something that I, I wanted to know. So this is something that the White House said recently. It's like, oh, well, if they want to have this $2 trillion deal, then they've got to figure it out. Now, $2 trillion is the amount of money that would be... Additional spending. Additional spending, quote unquote, over 10 years. extension of the budget caps. This is getting Correct. very wonky. Yeah. Right? But nonetheless, like... What the White House itself is floating is a CR, essentially, right? Correct. Basically yeah, flat this was their opening yeah, one year. across, yeah. right? So if you were to take a flat funding one-year sort of thing, right, and extend that 10 years, what is that? Is That's got to be like a 1.5, 1.6. Yeah, give or take. With, 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 um, when you include the um, interest costs of, of the additional debt that you're doing, it's about 1.5. Right. It's, a, it's essentially a one-year CR is $125 billion. And then what they do is for every year after that, they adjust it by inflation. Right. So it's 2% above that. And so over time, you're going to add up with a little bit of extra and interest on the extra debt. So you end up with about 1.5 over 10 years if you do the one year. But what Trump has said is, give me one year, give me a CR through the election, then I will come back after I win re-election and I'll cut all domestic agencies by 5 to 10%. And that's how I'm going to make this work. Fine, I'll let you have your little increase for the next year, year and three months. But after that, I'm going to come back and get you. Um, it's fa- I mean, that's that's the point. And that's why Democrats are like, yeah, no, not so much. We want to make these caps longer. right? We want to lock in a deal for more than one year because we won't want that ploy to be played. Right? And the oh, problem that the left... The, and not only do we have, you know, kind of long-term uh, disagreements uh, that you guys have outlined so well, but, I mean, on just a really basic level, uh, what's going on right now is, is uh, particularly badly hamstringed. I mean, we never got a budget resolution, so uh, there's no agreement in the House and the Senate to have the same numbers that they're marking up these different discretion, you know, like the, the different uh, appropriation okay, subcommittee yeah. bills to. So, you know, they're, they're both, like, thinking of different numbers, and, you know, the last time that we did this... I did things work out well. Yeah, did, really well. If you like we, to shut down the government we, for two yeah. and a half weeks, I mean, I, you know, so I don't. I, don't uh, I mean, I don't blame McConnell from a political point of view. Why should he mark up bills before there's a deal? What does that do for his members? Nothing, right? Yeah, it makes mean, him I, walk I think, a plank. Yeah, I think he's being a perfectly sensible and logical leader here, but obviously, like it does, sort of spiral us towards a shutdown. Very much so. If they're not going to. Well, move it all and just going to escalate this accumulation of deals. Well, and having the debt ceiling at the same time is just a really bad confluence. Of I mean, I can't decide. Like, I mean, now the administration obviously wants a clean debt ceiling bill, but how would you even structure the votes on that? Like, here's, could, could the Democrats just be like, fine, clean debt ceiling. We're giving you no votes in the Senate. You pass it. We won't filibuster it, but you're putting 51 votes on raising the debt ceiling well, with Republican and, votes. That's really tough for McConnell to do. Yeah, and Pelosi's opening bid is that she wants the caps raised if, if she's going to get a debt ceiling vote, but that she right. wants a debt ceiling vote. Right. And, um, that, and we'll see what happens. And that's that. telling, that the, yeah. the leader of the House wants a debt ceiling 
bill attached to the budget bill because basically she doesn't think that she can get the votes for a budget deal or a debt limit deal without them being combined in some way. I think that's right. Form. Yeah. Um, which right. is which is her again managing this left wing of the caucus and managing the centrists, right? Um, I don't think that there would be an issue for Democrats to raise the debt ceiling at all, really. Um, right. Maybe the moderates Never like start been. to waffle a little bit, but I have a hunch that she probably has more than enough votes to pass a clean uh, debt ceiling. The problem is like unless she attaches that to the budget deal, I don't think she has the votes for that. The left wing of her caucus, you're going to see the CPC and all these others start to flex their muscle when it comes to these budgetary matters. Yeah, and Matt, you've said this too, I think. Uh, historically, the debt limit is the... Minority's, majority's burden. Majority's burden. And the majority, in this case, is the majority being the president. Mm -hmm. It's always the president's party's mm -hmm. burden. Not necessarily the majority in the House, mm -hmm. but it's really the Republicans' burden. And that's coming into conflict because right now the Republicans don't want to raise the debt ceiling so it's well they all want to they all want to vote no and get yes I right mean, I mean, oh, that sounds vaguely familiar yeah I mean, that's, that's, I mean that's that's back true to the freedom caucus that's literally true for basically every politician the debt limit it's just a vote that sucks for everybody yeah. and that's um, why the house used to bury it yes and right? honestly like that that's one good policy burying it under a get part rule a better policy would just be abolishing it because it <laughs> Well, they it's tried, essentially right? a meaningless vote. Yeah. The, the, they ha they passed rules. So this is the great part about this. The House passed a rule that said if the House passes a budget resolution, it automatically counts as a vote to increase the debt ceiling. And the House could not pass a budget resolution, right? So like they couldn't meet the very low bar which they had set for themselves, um, which is sort of the predicament that she's in. Uh, because the CPC and the left wing of her caucus again revolted. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to yeah. line up with those numbers. There's not enough non-defense spending. Yeah. Um, and that's the that's the hurdle she's going to have to face when she's negotiating this budget deal with McConnell and, and Trump. She's in a, not in a good spot right now, to be honest. It's been yeah. a bad couple of weeks for her. Yeah, I mean, I, historically, it's been the Republicans who have, who have been willing to vote against this. I mean, you had, you had a... You had a, a show vote uh, where they showed that they could vote against the debt ceiling uh, before all the super committee kerfuffle that created our current sequestration regime. Um, you know, in in 2010, uh, they showed that they they were capable of bringing it to the floor and voting against it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is uh, was that the vote when the Democrats all sat in the sidelines and waited for the Republicans to have a majority of their caucus. That was a great vote. The Democrats wouldn't vote. They just waited until the end, and they waited until they saw that the Republicans could not get a majority of the Republicans in favor of it. And then they decided, I can't remember if they took it down, and then they said, okay, now you're going to have to negotiate with us because yep. you can't do it. Yeah. And we, we well, I mean, this was, I mean, this was in the, it, it wasn't at the last minute that this vote happened, but they showed that they had the votes to vote against it. Yeah, um, to bring and it. And we should probably reset for our crowd what the debt limit actually is. It's just a law okay. Congress passes that limits the amount of money the United States can borrow. Um, and because Congress also passes the laws that say how much we are going to spend, how much we're obligated to spend, and how much uh, ultimately we're going to raise in tax money. Okay, uh, if you spend more than you raise in tax money, then Treasury has to borrow to make up for it so that we are solvent on our obligations. And that becomes our deficit, which turns into our debt. And so Congress is now limiting the amount of debt you can pick up, no. how much debt you can pick up, which is really just a consequence of two other congressional decisions. Uh, and so it, it, it's it's there, but it really doesn't matter. If it didn't exist, we have to pay for these things anyway. Uh, we can raise taxes to pay for them, we can cut spending to pay for them, or we can borrow more money. Uh, and limiting borrow more money uh, is a nice political message, 
perhaps, but it does create these votes constantly because the United States is not going to default on its obligations. They're not going to stop sending out Social Security checks, uh, and there's no way to automatically raise taxes. And so, therefore, you have to keep raising the debt limit. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a useful context. So the debt limit by itself does not cause us to, to go deeper into debt. Those the decisions are, mm-hmm. you know, have to do with taxing and spending. Um, I mean, and it was created in 1917 uh, around a concern with how much uh, debt we had run up under World War One, um, and no un- other country has anything like this. Um, it is an incredibly dangerous tool to have as a focusing mechanism. Um, the only thing it can do is go boom. That's not a tool that I personally enjoy. Well, I mean, the reason it was put into place was because they felt like if you had to vote on it, then it would be less likely to be willing to, to uh, have to take the debt on. But it hasn't worked that way. No. Yeah, I mean... It hasn't worked that way. Not in recent times, at least. It hasn't worked that way. Um, so we'll see how it plays out over this next couple of weeks. And, and what was, I think what was the forcing mechanism was an outside organization who has been looking at this, I can't remember the name of it right off the top, um, who's the guys who really watch this as a non-prof, and they said, hey guys, it's not going to be October, November, it's going to be mid-September um, when this is going to happen. And then Mnuchin came out yesterday and said, yeah, it's going to be mid-September. And that's, there are now early, nine, early September. There are now nine legislative days in the House of Representatives between now and when we're going to hit the debt limit. Right? Just breaking news, Mike Gravel, former senator from Alaska. Oh, did he, did he drop out? Nope. Uh, he is proposing a constitutional amendment to wait for it, legalized marijuana. <laughs> Mike, you can do that statutorily. Yeah, you don't need a constitutional amendment for that, buddy. But it's a good one. Feels strongly. Maybe Boehner is helping him out with the lobbying. I like it. It's the super hard one. So for the, <laughs> for the NDAA, we ended up um, only losing eight Democrats on the final vote. What was the motion recommit? Like the motion recommit, recommit, I didn't see what the final vote was. It went down, but I didn't see what it was, mm-hmm. what the final vote was, and how many were on it. Um, but yeah, so I mean, kudos to, to Adam Smith for getting hmm. the NDAA through essentially with only Democratic votes. Um, there was no only Democratic vote, so there were no Republicans who voted for I, it. I feel like we should it's give a little impressive. bit of additional context for, for our listeners. Um, how unusual is it to have the NDAA become partisan? It's insanely unusual. I mean, this is something that has sailed through um, in a bipartisan manner through uh, two of the most bipartisan committees, the House Armed Services and the Senate Armed Services Committees, Hask and Sask, um, uh, where it's, it's, it's passed for like the past, what, 55 years? Well, we, um, we signed a law, yeah, every year for uh, For like the Since last... 46, right, 47. Um, you know, yeah. so this is, this is like this incredibly unusual kumbaya bipartisan uh, piece of legislation that is uh, so incredibly unusual that everyone pays attention to it because it's one of the few things that are going to pass. They want to add other things to it. And so the fact that this has become partisan, um, you know, is is something that's really notable. Well, one of the things that we need to keep in mind where we are in the process, it's, it's, it is unusual for it to be not bipartisan, right. but it's less unusual for it to be a partisan vote on Upon first passage, through the so yeah. right. That's so fair. when you're like kind of like cramming it through the house, like not totally uncommon, especially when we don't have the budget numbers that are lined up. Um, you do every once in a while see like a very partisan vote, and typically it's not totally partisan, uh, but you do see like a, a, a reduced amount of bipartisanship. So I would be, su- for example, I would be surprised if the budget deal was done and the caps were raised and everything goes back to like being hunky-dory budget land, and then sure. we come back to the, and revisit the NDAA, NDAA under these new numbers, then all of a sudden there's, oh, good, look look at this, and then you have a bipartisan vote upon final passage, right, and in, in after a conference. Yeah. I, mean, um, I would not be surprised to see that, but it was interesting because this process, the NDAA, 
was extremely bipartisan, like it normally is. And through then, committee. Through committee. And mm-hmm. then at the end of the committee hearing, basically Republicans got together. Um, and well, you had the one partisan vote in strategic forces subcommittee. Sure. Right? And yeah, I mean, so you had one, you know, right. you had one bang up hearing, right? So right. One, I mean, it was, you know, it totally kumbaya. I mean, the, yeah, the, right. the problem is it's a dollars issue, right? Yeah. Right. But, and, and then, issue. like, but they were working through the amendments in a bipartisan fashion. Right. And then rather reporting it out in a bipartisan way, what ended up happening is uh, Republicans gathered, decided to object to the overall top number, which is 733 instead of 750. Correct. And Correct. all of a sudden you have this instance where you, you've created like a partisan rift because Republicans want a higher number. Right. It's like basically them messaging the, their, their point of view. Which makes sense, but it it, was, it is still surprising that you're seeing this in NDAA and how bipartisan the NDAA in the future is kind of something up for question. Well, well, that's a good point. Well, it's interesting. I remember in 15 and 16 when I was when we were doing our classes for various military groups and talking about the National Defense Authorization Act, and I was saying, hey, you know, you guys have gotten this thing through every year. It's getting a little bit closer now, and it's getting a little bit scarier, yeah. and I was concerned that in the next, I said, in the next four years, you're not going to, one of these ones is going to fail. You just got to be ready for it. And then Trump won the White House. And when Trump won the White House, I changed my tune because I really felt like you weren't going to end up in a situation where we weren't going to get one. But I thought that if the Republicans controlled Congress and there was a Democrat in the White House, there was a chance the NDAA was going to have an issue. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe I was right. I just misguessed when. Yeah. I mean, to a certain degree, the, the question is not why is NDAA... Uh, collapsing into partisanship to a certain degree. The question is, why has it been able to hold together so long? Right? It, it's kind of surprising, and it, it, it doesn't shock me that political entrepreneurs uh, might start to take offense at other people's numbers and these things that you might see fraying on this. And frankly, like, that it's happening now doesn't really surprise me. It's happened right. everywhere else on the Hill. It happened in the Appropriations Colleen, Committee. You know right? who like, we should have on to talk about this? Colleen Shogun. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. <laughs> well, another one of these is, is that... The last time we had divided government, yeah. Last time we had divided government, the NDA almost died, right? So in 2014, everybody forgets how hard it was to get the NDAA across the line. The Senate didn't even go through; they didn't pass one. They They used the they used the uh, the Senate Armed Services Committee mark as the negotiating document in Congress. Like the House had passed it, it was a nightmare, right? It was an absolute nightmare. They passed it in December. Mm-hmm. Like right before Christmas, the very last right. second after a budget deal, it was a absolute nightmare. Um, and so I'm not surprised to see it kind of go down the way it is right now, but it is sort of surprising that it is starting to fray apart. But one of the reasons it is bipartisan is you've got, you've got military bases everywhere. You've got them in the heartland. You've got them on the coast. You've got them in Democratic constituencies and Republican constituencies. You've got um, tons of people, tons of veterans. I mean, it's just it's one of those issues that well, cuts across part of the And people love defense. I mean, they, well, they love our military. It's, it, it's a very large committee, too. Yeah, um, it, it's unusually large. Yeah, it, like public works, but somehow we can't seem to get infrastructure done. Um, <laughs> it's not it, infrastructure week. No. I want, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry. <yeah>. But and, <laughs> and everybody wants to protect the war fighter, right? And yes. as long as you're at war and you can make a case that we're at war right now, whether it's declared or not, um, people want to find ways to protect the war fighter. And so I think that that's why you've also seen a bipartisanship in how we've been doing this is because people want to protect the troops. The fact that we have an all mili- voluntary military makes it kind of interesting, too, because not all communities are affected the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, servicemen aren't coming from all around the country like they did during Vietnam. Uh, back in the Vietnam era, we spent 9% of our GDP on defense. 9%. We're at like 35 right now. 
to give people an indication of the differences. So while we're talking about spending a whole lot of money in defense, we're not spending nearly as much as we were yep. back in the Vietnam era. Yep. Well, that's true of discretionary spending, just period, right? True, right, because so, now, yeah, right, yeah. it used to be two out of every three dollars right. was spent on discretionary mm -hmm. spending, and in 10 years, it'll be two out of every nine. Right. Um, it's a huge difference. Right. And that's because mandatory spending is increasing yeah. a bunch. Yeah, and everybody talks about how, you know, we're spending so much on government, we're spending so much on government. It's like, yes, the numbers get larger because there's inflation and stuff, but there has been a successful reduction of government. As a percentage of no our... question. Right? right, as a percentage of our GDP, we're spending the least amount on government, on defense and non-defense, as we have in 40, 50, 60 years. Right. Yeah. And this we're is where, a lot yeah. less. And this, so this is where Nancy Pelosi kind of walks up and says, hey, they were, we're going to spend all this more money on non-defense stuff. And the Republican administration and the Republican senators are like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, the percentage of GDP, though, that is government spending is like... No, it's not government spending. GDP is our overall what we produce as a country. Yeah. So as what we produce as a country, our gross domestic product, we used to spend a lot more on government spending than what we do now. Discretionary spending. Discretionary spending. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. We spend a lot less than we used to. No, I no, I realize that. In terms of ter total federal outlays as a percentage of GDP, um, we've hovered between like 18 and 21, 22% for basically the past 50 years. So the idea that like the size of government has uh, notably gone up right. um, or gone down is not actually particularly accurate like for, for the kind of modern period of uh, government um, uh, programs um, you know the size of government has been like relatively constant mm -hmm. uh, now we have been able to um, so I'm talking total federal outlays which right. includes which, entitlements which mo uh, yeah a lot more is going to entitlement you know. from defense spending to entitlement spending right essentially <laughs> right yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's that's what what the trend is. And some non and non defense too. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, but more um, so on the defense side. Now we've managed to cut cut the hell out of revenues, but that is. Uh, well, we're having, we're still collecting about seventeen percent of GDP, which is yep. at the yeah, lower yeah. range, but it's still it's in the range, range of where we've been. We're usually between seventeen and nineteen. So the revenues no, are still coming you know, in about those, the same. Right? Those two two to three is is significant. But, but we've seventeen is at the bottom it. level. So the problem yeah. is our spending is going up to twenty one. Yeah. And our spending has been down at around eighteen or nineteen. And it's that four percent difference that's huge where it's been one yeah, or no, two in the past. We're saying the same thing. <laughs> um, and that's that's uh, so yes, we are at the we're lower end of revenue, thing. but we're not crazy low. Um, for revenue. So switching gears here yeah. a little bit because we've, <laughs> we're like we've let's gone define from, GDP for everyone. <laughs> we, we started off we just talked about like Pelosi's leadership and then we got into NDA and now budget. And, like one of the things I want to talk about before we go is Justin Amash, right? Who has added new this week? <laughs> Justin, Congress two beers in. Yeah, Justin Amash, the C-SPAN uh, now has an eye line. Yes, the, the the total loser from Michigan. Um, he is sorry, I don't really mean that, but. <laughs> so, uh, that's unexpectedly has, harsh for me, Josh. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> isn't that what it's, 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 is that Trump called? I think that's what Trump called. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, but he was the only Republican at the time to come out for impeachment. Um, and now he is no longer Republican. Um, and he, he no, no longer has a committee From seat. Michigan. Um, yes. No, right. And we're drinking Bell's Too Hearted, which is from Michigan. Um, and by the way, Josh means him, but yes. that's okay. Josh, yeah, that's Josh has feelings that's, about this particular beer. Well, we're not going to get into that. But, <laughs> um, it is interesting that Justin Amash has kind of uh, renounced his Republican Party. He's no longer part of the Oversight and Reform Committee. He mm. has tons of time on his hands at the moment. <laughs> um, it's an interesting development because uh, Justin Amash was among the most conservative members of the House 
Caucus. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, very, very conservative member. Um, was part of the House Freedom Caucus and sort of very, very disillusioned with um, the Republican Party and that message as well. Um, and has since become an independent. Uh, he's not going to caucus with Democrats. I do not. Right? Does not share the same principles yeah. as Democrats do. Um, what is his influence going to be as an independent um, at this point in time? I think the most recent example would have been Bernie Sanders when he was in yeah, I mean, internally, almost zero. Yes. Right? Or effectively, literally zero internally. He has his vote, and uh, that doesn't mean a whole lot in the House. You're one of 435 voters, uh, and he'll be able to leverage that vote, which is worth almost nothing. So unless he's literally the median voter, he will never do that. <laughs> I think that's essentially right. right. But uh, no different than AOC, he's going to command more attention from the media, uh, both deserved and undeserved because he now has more people following him or interested in what he thinks. He speaks out against his party, so the media are interested in it. Um, and so he'll be a voice that's larger than one vote of one random member from Michigan. Um, and, uh, you know, I, um, Amash is, I would say, the biggest outlier I've ever met in Congress. He really is like this strangely principled guy. And I don't say that in a bad way. Uh, people are people are like, oh, no one in Congress is principled. Amash is weird because he has principles. It's like, no, Amash really takes every vote oddly seriously. Most members rely on their partisanship to guide their votes or will sacrifice uh, their underlying beliefs about public policy in order to make trade-offs for partisan reasons for electoral reasons. Amash really doesn't do that. Um, and it's, it's very strange to see him operate because the problem is not that that's weird. The problem is that that's not a way to survive in Congress. Yeah. Yeah. And if most people tried that oh, in their districts and with right. their styles, they'd just be gone. Um, and that's why no one does it. Uh, and so watching Amash do it. 18 months from now, we might. Yeah. And, and Amash may be gone too very easily. And I don't know what his plans are, but it could be everything from, you know, running for president. Which to, he hasn't ruled out. Right. To going back and, you know. I mean, a lawyer, a college professor, or whatever, somewhere. So I, I'm fascinated to see what Amash does. I've yep. always been fascinated by Amash since he got into office because he is a extraordinarily conservative member who never really had much partisanship in him, uh, and that was always reflected. But now it's sort of you know accelerated under Trump. And yeah, I mean, I, th- I think he's a really interesting case study in, in showing how you know you the parties are the strongest organizing principle in Congress. Um, if you go against them. Uh, your ability to get things done is uh, severely attenuated. Um, you know, goodbye committee seat. Um, you know, this is Bernie Sanders' first term in Congress where he's, he's like, oh, I'm not going to caucus with you guys. I'm special and different. I'm, I'm a socialist. Um, they're like, oh, that's adorable. You don't have a seat on any committees. Um, you know, so you need to p- play ball with the powers that be uh, that organize the place. And when you don't, uh, that's a problem for you. I also think that there have been a, a few kind of minor ways in which uh, Republicans in Congress have been able to push back uh, against President Trump. And there's a lot of like, con- mm-hmm. you know, things like nominees for the, f- you know, for the Fed, things like that. Um, you know, we can go down the list, but there's a lot of kind of conversation about why isn't that more. And I think we've seen like a, a really good case study of what happens when you push back more. Um, it's harder. Yeah, it's harder. I mean, the place—the only other place we've really seen it, I think, and maybe I'm wrong—but is arms deals um, in the Middle East, yep. right? And the, there's been a lot of pushback on that. Yeah, right but now. yeah, we it's, saw it's, some it's of a that small number. Today. Yeah, but it's 
But well, it's, it's four Republicans in the Senate, right? It's four Republicans in the Senate and 47 Democrats, or 45 and two independents. Right. But in the House, right. we've also had um, right. And in the, in the well, the House is you know they they have the reins of the agenda, right. so they can just kind of put whatever they want on there. But it, it it's basically very similar. And this is one of the things that's very interesting to watch because um, as much as the partisan norms kind of grab it, like grab all members of Congress and have been extremely powerful in wrangling votes on procedure and uh, in many cases final passage. You're starting to see this larger and larger band of sort of non-partisan partisans, if you will, right? Um, so the Rand Pauls, the Mike Lees, the Ted Cruz's, Massey. the Justin Amash, the Masseys, the um, Chip Roy's. Uh, they, I mean, they're very partisan in the way that they approach politics in many instances, but they're also very independent. Um, and they're not willing to be sort of cowed by many of the partisan pressures on procedural votes or some of these other things. Like they're going to stick to their guns and they go with it. So they're um, strongly ideological, but they're not partisan yes. Fair, um, yeah, collaborators. Exactly. And you're starting to see this on the left as well. Right. With AFC what, right. and yep. Presley and uh, Omar and, and Tlaib um, and some of the other CPCers. And it's becoming interesting because um, this only starts to happen when you start to see too much leadership pressure, right? And mm. we may be getting to that point where um, leadership has gotten so powerful that it's actually starting to create these independent streaks among among even partisans um, who are just tired of the, with, with the way that things are going. Like they can't get their principles across because they're shut out of the process. And that's a function of how much uh, leadership structure or control is being um, uh, being exerted. And a and great point to that is the NDAA, which put in place and. Uh, a rule that made in order the most amendments in House history. Right? 441. Right, out of 667. So 441. <laughs> and this is stunning, and it's accurate, because not because this is the most amendments that have been considered on a bill, but because this is the most amendments that the Rules Committee has allowed to be debated right. on the floor. And that, again, is a function of the power of party leaders. Um, so I, I can only imagine we're going to see more and more of these types of independent partisans, I guess I'll call them, right? Where their streaky ideological um, uh, pressures will start to actually undermine some of the partisanship we see. It'll be interesting to see if that continues or if it wanes, but um, Democrats are certainly struggling with it just as much as Republicans are now. Um, well, and it's interesting to see a focus on ideology over party when the ramping up uh, upcoming election cycle is going to see um, pressure to see party over ideology yep. um, and that tension and how oh, that yeah. plays out um, Democratic will, will, presidential be, primary. will yeah. be very interesting so um, yep. you know so we promised to come back uh, faster than four six weeks or whatever it's been <laughs> the next time we got a couple weeks until August yeah um, we'll do one more before the August break no, that's eh, right. no promises that's right. over no, August not too many people at GAI in August um, but uh, we'll I'm come back I'm happy to Skype in from Bali <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, In the meantime, I hope everybody has a great weekend, and we will catch you later. Adios.